about 450 years ago is where this sermon starts. Europe was in the midst of the Reformation, deep into a series of religious debates and religious wars that would define much of European history for the next several hundred years. A generation earlier, two events happened almost simultaneously. Martin Luther and others began writing and preaching about the need for fundamental reform in the institutional church. And at the same time, the newly invented printing press allowed those ideas to spread faster and wider than ever before. What would have been a hundred years earlier, a regional movement for reformation became a continent and eventually worldwide conflagration. France, England, Germany, Poland, even if we count the Renaissance, Italy, saw almost simultaneous social movements, each expressed in their local language and context, but with some commonalities. Germany had several civil wars, Spain, the Inquisition. In England, the monarch formed an independent church that would grant him a divorce, which is how all good denominations begin. It is not an exaggeration to say that over the course of the 16th century, issues of faith tore Europe apart at the seams. Monarchs responded to this unrest in different ways. In England, Queen Elizabeth was nominally Protestant, but ceased much of the sectarian violence that defined her father's reign. In France, Henry IV muttered something in French that I attempted at the 9 a.m. service to pronounce in French. But translated means <laughs> Paris is worth a mass as he converted to Catholicism as a condition of his kingship. In Germany, at the Peace of Augsburg, a generation of religious strife ended with the declaration Quaes Regio, Aes Religio, whose realm, his religion establishing that whoever ruled the state, his, and it was almost always his, religion would be practiced. And then around the same time, something remarkable happened in what is now Eastern Hungary. The first generation of Unitarians arose in Western Europe, France, Switzerland, Italy, and they had the unique distinction among the many groups and sects establishing themselves at about the same time, to be seen as dangerous heretics by everybody else. <laughs> they were prosecuted, occasionally burned at the stake, often burned in effigy by both Protestant and Catholic authorities. And so Unitarian refugees ended up in Eastern Europe first in Poland, and then eventually in Transylvania. Last week, we told a story about the Transylvanian Unitarians. They are still there. Because in Transylvania, Unitarians found a warm reception, both in the population and in the monarch, King John Sigismund. Sigismund believed in dialogue, and after hosting multiple formal debates between religious leaders, he became the first Unitarian head of state in 1567. And one year later, following a meeting of clergy in Torda, he issued the following edict. 
not in English, but translated it reads, His Majesty our Lord, in whatever manner he, together with his realm, legislated in the matter of religion at the previous diets, in the same matter now, in this meeting, reaffirms that in every place the preachers shall preach and explain the gospel, each according to his understanding of it. And if the congregation like it, good. If not, no one shall compel them, for their souls will not, would not be satisfied, but they shall be permitted to keep a preacher whose teaching they approve. Therefore, none of the superintendents or others shall abuse the preachers. No one should be reviled for their religion by anyone, according to previous statutes, and it is not permitted that anyone should threaten anyone else by imprisonment or by removal from his post for his teaching. For faith is, is the gift of God, and this comes from hearing, which hearing is by the word of God. There are many things that are remarkable about this document. The first is that it's a government proclamation that is two paragraphs long. <laughs> but beyond that, we can begin to see the beginnings of two elements that continue to define our tradition down to today. Communities choose their own ministers, and ministers cannot be removed from their post by authorities for offenses against orthodoxy. In contemporary terms, we call these two things freedom of the pew and freedom of the pulpit. And together, they make up much of what makes liberal religion unique. And these two are old pieces of American Unitarian and Universalist traditions. Pre-merger, there is almost always something called the conscience clause in the governing documents of both Unitarians and Universalists. They would say, here are all the things that Unitarians believe, except, be it, by the dictates of conscience, in which case exceptions may be made. In current UUA bylaws, this appears just after the principles and sources. Article 2 ends with this language. Nothing herein, meaning the principles and sources, shall be deemed to infringe upon the individual freedom of belief, which is inherent in the Unitarian and Universalist heritages, or to conflict with any statement of purpose, covenant, or bond of union used by any congregation, unless such is used as a creedal test. Freedom of the pulpit takes this basic principle of our faith, that the dictates of conscience trump any institutional statement of belief. So when you called me to serve as the minister here in Lincoln, the congregational president and I signed a letter of call laying out what the bounds of the agreement are between myself and this congregation. Letters of call are contracts in that they spell out pay, time off, who owns intellectual property. But they also go beyond the letter, the language of contract, into describing the nature of the covenantal relationship between a minister and a congregation. So in the one that I signed here, there's a paragraph that says, it is a basic premise of this congregation that the pulpit is free and untrammeled. The minister is expected to express their values, views, and commitments without fear or favor. 
This is part of the obligation that clergy take on in our movement to express our values, views, and commitments, the dictates of our conscience, without fear that either the congregation or the denomination will declare us unorthodox. It gives us freedom to explore ideas for ideas' sake. In some way, it's similar to the freedoms granted by the tenure process. And there's a beauty to having this freedom, not least because it allows us to follow the dictates of conscience, the still small voice that whispers in the night, this is wrong, no matter what the world, the president, or even the denomination says. It is what has allowed us to be on the forefront of so many movements because it is much easier for an individual to take a stand on conscience than for an institution to do the same. It is a treasured freedom for clergy in our tradition. And when it's been infringed, it has, in the past, created significant conflicts in, the car in congregations and the denomination. Freedom of the pew, or in our case, freedom of the chair, <laughs> is the mirror image of freedom of the pulpit. I have the freedom to preach from my, con my conscience. And the congregation, every individual in it, has the freedom to listen to what I or anyone else preaches and then decide, yeah, that sounds pretty good, or no, that's not right. There is no doctrinal test for Unitarian Universalism. This means that I will never, not ever, say, you must hold this specific belief to be Unitarian Universalist. If someone ever says that from a Unitarian Universalist pulpit, they have profoundly misunderstood the heart of our tradition. Congregations operate as democratic bodies choosing their own ministers. We've carried that straight from the Edict of Torda to 2020. And we've added to Torda because it's not just communities that can choose what their faith is. It is a freedom committed to each individual. If you are compelled by the religion preached and practiced in this space, we welcome you in. If you are less than compelled by what I or anyone else has to say on a given Sunday, well, we welcome you in as well. We have the freedom in our tradition to work things out for ourselves. But there's an important piece of all of this that we haven't touched on yet. And that is that these freedoms, both of the pulpit and the pew, are not absolute because we know that we are interconnected, that we are a covenantal people. That as Martin Luther King put it 50 years ago and we quoted last week, all life is interconnected. Somehow we are all tied together. For some strange re reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interconnected nature of reality. So the limit on freedom of the pulpit and freedom of the pew is this. We have those freedoms in community and we are accountable to the communities we choose to participate in. So to make that concrete, 
I could, hypothetically, very, very hypothetically, convert in my personal life. I could become convinced and convicted by an exclusionist interpretation of Christianity, one that says nobody comes to God but through Jesus. There are preachers that I know and love for whom that is the dictate of their conscience. That is the thing that they must preach every Sunday. And if I was to preach that, even if it was what was on my heart, even if it was the dictate of my conscience, I would be profoundly out of covenant with the community that called me. That's not the same as saying I would be a bad person or that I could not hold that belief, but I would need to hold that belief in a different role than minister of a pluralistic, theologically diverse, Unitarian Universalist church in 2020. And freedom of the pew is similar. I will never, not ever, say from this pulpit, you have to believe this to be a good Unitarian Universalist. And at the same time, we can imagine beliefs that would be out of covenant with our community. Is it possible to be in covenant with this community and believe deeply that one gender expression or race is inherently superior to others? So I will never tell people what they should believe, but if somebody walked into my office expressing sympathy for the white supremacists that marched in Charlottesville a few years back, and then went on to define themselves as Unitarian Universalist, I would invite them to consider that those two worldviews are contradictory. So not having a specific orthodoxy, having this freedom of pew and pulpit is not the same thing as avoiding moral statements. And then there's one last part of freedom of the pulpit that's come up in the last year in the broader UUA. So some of you might know part of this story. Some of you might know a lot of this story. Some of you might know none of this story. Claire G., I was taught, have freedom to follow the dictates of their conscience. But for those of us that serve congregations, there is one commitment that comes first. It is the duty of every person who gets behind a pulpit to serve the people that we are called to. It is not about us. Whether it's me or a worship associate or a guest preacher on Sunday, the first and most important question is not, is this what I need to say? It is, is this what the congregation needs to hear? Does that distinction make sense? So at General Assembly last summer in Spokane, and this is the story that you might know part of, the minister of the Spokane congregation chose to publish a book critical of the UUA and its focus on dismantling white supremacy culture. There has been a tremendous amount of ink and pixels spilled over the last six months regarding his critique. And I would not be following the dictates of my own conscience if I stood up here and said I don't have critiques of our, of our denomination myself ever. If you ever talk to me, you probably know that that's not realistic. But conscience only exists in the context of community, of relationship. 
And the minister in Spokane chose to release his book unannounced in the middle of a general assembly that his congregation was hosting without fully informing his congregation that he was doing so. So relationships were strained, to put it mildly. And towards the end of the summer, the Unitarian Universalist Ministers Association, of which I am a part, issued a letter of censure for his actions. There's a lot more to that story. We may talk about it, we may not. If you wanna talk about it, come talk to me in the office. The important part for me is this. The question cannot solely be, is this what I need to say? There are lots of things that preachers need to say. We can say them at home. <laughs> we can say them at an organizing meeting for a candidate for office when we are not representing our church. We can say them at the grocery store. We can say them to our colleagues. But just about anywhere we are, we, we say them with the understanding that anywhere we find ourselves, we are in relationship. Preachers or lay people, we are always in relationship. So we can say whatever our conscience dictates, but that does not absolve us of the responsibility of being accountable for those words. And when we are serving a congregation, the question can never be, what do I need to say? But it has to be, what does the congregation need to hear? So 450 years ago, the Edict of Torah started to build a legacy of freedom and tolerance in our tradition, and it is a remarkable document. And for all the reasons that it's remarkable, this one last one stands out. No single individual gets to declare what is right and wrong. In Germany, the Peace of Augsburg said that the prince, whose reign his religion, one person decided. But Torta places that responsibility with the community. To say this community has the freedom to choose its beliefs. This community has the freedom to choose its minister. And ministers get to follow the dictates of their conscience in the context of relating to that community. So, what will we do with that freedom? That is a question that integrity asks us. We come to the end of this month where we're talking about integrity. And so that's the question that's gonna probably wait for a little while. What do we do with that freedom? As we are accountable to each other and we follow the dictates of our conscience. May it be. And amen. <laughs>